Time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. I'm back. You're back, and it's great to have you back, especially on a, a busy day like today. Lots going on. Yeah, so as we speak, uh, Housing Minister Ravi Kailan just stood on his feet, introduced a bill that will crack down on short-term rentals in B.C. and basically confine short-term rentals to someone's principal residence or and or a secondary suite within that residence which means if you own multiple properties, you can no longer rent those properties oh. to short-term rentals. Oh, wow. They have to be long-term. I haven't yeah. quite got the detail what what defines a short-term. But, um, yeah, this is – and apparently like, half the um, uh, half the short-term rentals over there are landlords who own multiple properties, according yeah. to the data we're getting from the government today. Uh, the exemptions will be resort regions and towns under the population of 10,000 because a lot of them res- – um, sort of depend on tourist income. Sure. Short-term and a lot of them don't have hotels, really. Yeah, people, so it makes sense, I think, for, you know, ski regions and, and some of these. So places. this would not, so Whistler would be exempted. Looks like Whistler, 14 resort regions are exempt. Okay. Um, and so this is primary, it seems to be aimed more at urban, suburban areas where the bulk of the population lives. So uh, municipalities and districts can opt in if they want to, that are exempt. If they want to get part of this, they can. Also, the fines for anyone caught in violation have been increased substantially up to a maximum of $50,000, including, wow. I think, something like $2,000 a day per infraction. And it's also going to be phased in. It's not starting today. It's going to be right. phased in over a, a period of months. So that's the bill that's in front of the House uh, as we speak right now. Okay, very interesting. And this is significant that, you would it would you'd only be allowed to do an Airbnb in your principal residence for for the, for where that applies because that would cut out a lot of a lot of landlords or or real estate owners who are basically running these places like well, hotel rooms. According to the documents we're getting today, this would eliminate the majority of short-term rentals from landlords who own multiple properties. Okay. So you know, principal residence, you and I own our principal residence. We would have to move out. Yeah. To allow a short-term rental to come in. So where are we going to go? Yeah. So, I mean, that basically kills the short-term rental on a principal residence, as far as I can determine, unless you want to move down to your basement suite and rent your upstairs. But that's different than an absentee landlord sort of situation with parties. And one of the knocks on the Airbnbs, and I've seen this in my neighborhood, three-day stay, three-day party. Um, and you're not going to allow that if you're in a principal residence and you move down to your basement suite. You're not going to have a party upstairs. So that eliminates that problem. So this is a this has been a long time coming. It's been hinted at by Reddy Kalon some months ago. And now it's being introduced uh, right now. Is this going as far as you anticipated it would go? Because I know there are some other jurisdictions that seem to have brought down even tougher restrictions. Like I'm thinking about New York City, for example, where they brought in rules that say that you are not allowed to rent on Airbnb for less than 30 days, which has basically shut down the vast majority of Airbnbs in New York City. Doesn't sound like they've gone that far. No, I think this is more a um, betting that this would be enough because... People who live in principal residences are unlikely to rent their principal residence for three days because yeah. they'd have to move somewhere else. So yeah. I think there seems to be betting that this will this type of mechanism will work along with the stiffer penalties. Also gives the municipalities more powers to police this and to enforce this. And okay. To, and to fine. So, well, that's another big part of it because we've heard a lot from municipalities saying, like, we don't have the resources to, we don't have the bylaw officers to go snooping around checking out Airbnbs. Yeah, as we want help. When we get these announcements, we get the so called stakeholders here, which is included in the news release. So there's a half dozen mayors who are, you know, providing testimonials to this. So, and Ken Sim in Vancouver's in here. Marianne Alto from Victoria's in here. In fact, she's going to be at the announcement at 10 30 today. 
So they've got the buy-in from a number of mayors on yeah. this thing. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, um, it, and it's designed basically to get, open up that rental market yeah. for long-term renters. Let's listen to Adam Olson here, who's a Green Party MLA, one of many who've been calling on government to bring the hammer down here on Airbnb. Here's what he had to say earlier. The BC Green Caucus is calling on the BC NDP to regulate the short-term rental industry. Built on a disruptive business model, short-term rental platforms have fundamentally changed the housing market in British Columbia. The result is many long-term rentals have been lost to short-term and vacation rentals. Okay, so we'll see if what they think about this bill, I guess, and other critics. Maybe some will say it doesn't go far enough. You're right. I mean, so you point to New York City where they want an outright ban or... And again, I haven't seen the fine print. What determines short term? So that's yeah. one of the key. What's the definition of that? Um, it's in here somewhere. I'm sure I just haven't got to it because we just got this stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is like freshly breaking right now as we discuss. Okay, so we'll have more details on these as they come out here this morning. Another file on the government's hot plate here is the, the continuing fight over policing in, in Surrey. Right. I can't believe that this thing is now getting kicked up potentially to the Supreme Court of British Columbia. I mean, this thing is just <laughs> well, this today, thing is going to cost a fortune, though. Today we get um, amendments to the Police Act, yeah. which only will tangentially touch on Surrey. Although there's rumblings there's going to be one section that specifically talks about Surrey. But the other sections are not about Surrey. Surrey's basically gone through their process. The other section is to ensure this doesn't happen again. Yeah. So there's going to be an amendment that uh, prevents the city council from reversing course once they go down this path Ooh. of changing uh, municipal police forces because there are municipalities in Metro Vancouver that are looking at changing police forces. So once you make a decision, you can't reverse yourself. Let's listen to Mike Farnworth on this precise point. So he had been saying this is coming. They're going to do something to make sure that this this mess doesn't happen all over again. Here's Farnworth. I don't think anyone wants to see this uh, any government be in this situation again. And uh, my intention is to bring legislation in the fall that uh, will ensure that that does not happen. Okay, so that's happening today. Yeah, and one of the other sections will be any municipality that starts to embark on this route will require the minister's involvement right at the beginning instead of halfway through. Mm. Also, uh, incumbent on municipalities to provide information right at the beginning. Again, right, this dueling fight we've seen for years between Surrey and Victoria, but everyone's got a different set of numbers yeah. and different sets of financial information. So that has to be laid out at the beginning as well. And then I'm looking to see if there's going to be a specific amendment that deals with the Surrey situation. Ooh. Not sure. I mean, oh. right now that's in the rumor mill, but uh, the three for sure, the ones I just outlined, which is uh, making sure this doesn't happen again and getting the government earlier involvement in the process of you know, municipality wants to do this. But, but of course, in the case of Surrey, this is like the barn door being locked after the proverbial horses have left, right? I mean, the, yeah. Surrey is now kicking this up into the highest court in that, the, the B.C. Supreme Court. That's a different that's a different fight now. What's going to happen there? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's going to come down to will a court agree that uh, Farnworth and the government exercised its its powers as outlined under the Police Act? So all along, I've been asking, you know, the quite legal questions of the Farnworth ministry. Do you have the legal advice? Do you have the legal evidence without showing us anything? Because they don't show legal advice. They've been insisting for two, three years. They've got legal advice. This is how you read the Police Act. And they say it's a slam dunk. We can do this. We can, we can force this. them to, to, go, to under, go with the Surrey Police Act. Under service. the Police Act. Now, there's this thing yeah. called the Community Charter, which Gordon Campbell brought in, which is I don't think is in law as strong as the Municipal Act or the Police Act, which has been around for 100 years and has been tested in court many times. So we'll see. The, the, the Surrey's looking for what a judicial review, which yeah. is not 
you know, that's not throwing this out necessarily. It's just a judicial review. So we'll see what a judge um, has to say about that whenever it gets in front of them. What do you think about the, on another topic, the mayor of Merritt? He was on the show here last week, his name is Mike Getz. And the emergency room there at their hospital, he said, has been shut down this year so far 16 times. And they're fed up. And he says, look, we are not getting the service we pay for through our taxes that we collect locally and then remit to Victoria. So we are going to withhold our taxes. We will calculate how many days this emergency room has been shut down, and we will withhold that portion of taxes to Victoria. No, I asked Adrian Dix about this today, the health minister. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to go there. He just said, look, I'm not, I'm not going to get into a fight with his mayor over this. Can they do that? Like, can a mayor... Because I've heard this before. It. I've heard mayors threaten to do it. this kind of thing before. I don't see too many instances of a small town withholding successfully taxes from a senior government. Uh, you know, it, the provincial government will, will go to court to collect any taxes. Now, the mayor, though, you know, that's a real problem mayor has got. Yeah. And other small towns have as well. There's yeah. a critical lack of human resources. And I'm not sure withholding taxes is going to solve the problem at all. Yeah. It's not like there's a pool of bodies that Adrian Dix can send to merit on a moment's notice. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the critical, we talked about this many times, the human resource problem. You know, on the weekend, five sailings to Salt Spring. Were can't, like Salt Spring was cut off on the weekend because BC Ferries never had enough staff. Wow. So an entire island community was cut off uh, wow. for a substantial period of time because of human resource issues. Whether it's ferries, emergency rooms, other services that you expect people there to provide you, particularly when you're in a small town where there's there's not a lot of replacements to be brought in, you know, um, you don't see Surrey closing its ER, you don't see Dick General closing its ER, but they do have they all have staff shortages, and it's acutely felt in small towns. But I'm not sure threatening to withhold taxes is going to be a Baldry's beat right to your phone calls here, Jeff and Surrey. Hi, Jeff. Go ahead. Jeff. No, Jeff? Okay, Dave and Mission. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Oh, hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. I called you about this Airbnb and, and, uh, and uh, you know, use, being able to use your after-tax money for whatever you want. If a person wants to have five Airbnbs, that is their right. They have, the government has no right to tell you what you can and can't do with your after-tax money. Okay? It's the same as if I own five properties and I chose not to rent them out. It's the same thing. And the other thing is, too, we're 10,000 10, hotel rooms short in this province for tourism. What's it going to do yeah. to tourism if we, if we get rid of Airbnb? Okay, Dave, thank you for the call. Well, first of all, government can tell you all sorts of things, what you can do and what you can't do with your property. I mean, just try any try anyone who's tangled with City Hall about uh, an easement or something on your, you know, addition to your house. So, yeah. yeah, no, there are rules in place to tell you all sorts of restrictions. So the government can do this. Property. The yeah. government can pass a law that says you can't, you can't rent well, this. Well, he raises a good point about hotel room uh, situation. I mean, oh, yeah. for the longest, I haven't checked recently, there was cause to go to Vancouver a couple of weeks ago. I couldn't find a hotel room. For less than five hundred bucks, Whoa. it was it's insane because there's just not enough hotel rooms, and that's an, that's one of the things that's unknown. What, what will taking Airbnbs off the market do to people trying to find a location yeah. in uh, in Vancouver? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Sean in New West. Hi, Sean. Go ahead. Hey, I'm, I was thinking. Uh, I wanted to know Keith's opinion on reforming healthcare. I mean, for now, I see a lot of people talking about human uh, issues, uh, human resource issues, and and funding, but we're, it seems like we're just throwing money at the problem instead of 
having a parallel conversation about, hey, how do we make healthcare efficient? How do we streamline this so that we don't run into these situations in the future? But I don't hear that conversation. I just hear a lot of complaining and a lot of misguided funds and people screwing things up. But I don't talk well, about. Well, do, do you think there's about, do you think there should be private a private healthcare option? Well, hey, that's a that's an interesting question maybe for another day because that's a oh, yeah. new conversation. Well, that seems, okay, to be, that seems to be the heart of it. I mean, the one of the, and there's been a fair amount written and said about this. Can we still sustain the model that was devised in the 1960s of a public health care system that faced with a hugely, uh, rapidly increasing population, um, rapid cost in technology, and then the human resources aspect factored into that, yeah. which wasn't there 10 years ago. We didn't have a shortage of a lot of professions 10 years ago although the, the, the shortage of family doctors has been building for years. So that's another complicating factor you add to the mix. And there's increasingly, a lot of people are talking about a complete revamping of healthcare. Can you Can the public model be sustained as the one we grew up with, or does there have to be fundamental changes? So I think the caller raises a good point. I would disagree with them, though. I don't think the conversation is not being had. I think it's just beginning. Well, I'll have, we'll have Tracy Porteous on the show tomorrow. And she's a Vancouver woman who was on a waiting list, a, a Victoria woman, I should say, who was on a waiting list for hip replacement surgery in pain mm-hmm. on opioids to deal with the pain, decided to go to a private clinic in Alberta and pay for it out of her own pocket. She paid over $30,000 for her hip replacement. Mm-hmm. You know, And she said she saw a lot of other people in British Columbia at that clinic doing the same thing. So you, you you start to get to a point. Well, you know, are you saying is the government saying that you should just wait in pain and take one for the team? Well, yeah. I mean, that's been one of the arguments all along that courts yeah. have rejected. Yeah, courts have rejected that argument. So until courts, uh, the Supreme Court gets its head around a different viewpoint, that's just going to be yeah. the case. But again, this is all subject to change. Yeah. Vince and Kamloops. Hi, Vince. Go ahead. Hi, guys. Thank you for taking my call. I sure. um, two points with respect to the medical thing. I, I, every industry and every business over the last twenty years has changed. Everything from travel to real estate to you know a host of other businesses. So potentially the medical system needs to change as well. But what I'd like to do is just make a quick point with respect to the Airbnbs. I don't have an Airbnb, but I'm a longtime landlord, and many of my friends and my clients that are doing Airbnbs are doing it for such reasons as they don't want to have to deal with the day-to-day problems that many tenancies are bringing them. And just yesterday, I had to go and do a sewer clean-out where the, the tenant deliberately made mm-hmm. a mess. And, and yeah. the cost was astronomical, not to mention the fact that they are about 40% undervalued in terms of what their tenancy agreement is. Okay. Getting anybody yeah. out behind schedule on a payment takes a significant amount of time, effort, um, it's it, it, those are some of the other issues that go along with eliminating the Airbnb. Vince, thank I, you I, for the call. Thirty I, seconds. Yeah, so there are lots of landlords out there who don't want to be saddled with a tenant who becomes a bad tenant. You can't get rid of them. Yeah, I mean, so the, so the Airbnb it instead. Airbnb is a revenue stream. Now, I think what we're talking about is there a difference between a three-day Airbnb and a thirty-day yeah. Airbnb? And I would argue that there is a fundamental difference there. Keith, thanks a lot. Talk tomorrow.